Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his Grand Circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On today's podcast, I want to take you around the United Kingdom Pavilion at Epcot and uh, show you around, tell you about what it is, what you can see here, and all the things that exist in this pavilion. For an important Epcot moment. October 19, 1982, dedication of the United Kingdom Showcase at Epcot Center, Walt Disney's Don Tatum. Ladies and gentlemen, young ladies and young gentlemen, welcome to the United Kingdom. Here on this lovely lagoon where a number of the nations of the world are standing side by side and a symbol of friendship, it's a very great pleasure for me on behalf of the Disney organization to be able to officiate at this very important dedication. It has long been said that the sun never sets on the British Commonwealth of Nations. And uh, it's a very pleasing thing to be able to establish this piece of Britannic extraterritoriality today here in Walt Disney World. The United Kingdom is represented by a number of its leading companies at Epcot Center. Bass Ale, Twining's Tea, Pringle and Dalton Tableware to name a few, and representing the United Kingdom, Mr. R.J. Saunders. Background of beef eaters, flags, a London square, perfect settings for those of us who come from the United Kingdom to receive Don Tatum's warm words of welcome. We hope, Don Tatum, that these Twinings and Daltons and Pringles and Guinnesses and Bass will provide pleasant companionship for you here in this, the most exciting of the great Disney projects. The United Kingdom is a welcome addition to Epcot Center, and this dedication will stand as an important Epcot moment. So as before, we'll break this up and I'll give you an overview, talk about the buildings, designs, and architecture, then move on to talk about the grounds, outdoor gardens, and displays. I'll then head inside and talk about all the inside displays and shopping, and afterward I'll tell you about the entertainment that you'll find, characters and kids stuff, and I'll end with dining options and drinking around the world. And finally, I'll give you some details on what either was planned for the pavilion or is planned for the future. This is the seventh in a series of podcasts about World Showcase. I'll put links to the other shows on my show notes page. The United Kingdom Pavilion is located between Canada and the International Gateway on the west side of World Showcase. It was another of the original opening day pavilions and hasn't changed much since debuting in 1982. It was and is sponsored by the Bass Brewery, which makes good sense because one of the key components of the pavilion is a pub, which features the sale of their ales. 
It's designed to look like a stereotypical British village, but with a bit of a twist. Rather than depicting one time period, the Imagineers instead cover the history of the United Kingdom through the architectural styles ranging from the 1500s to about 1900. The styles of the buildings represent Victorian, London, Yorkshire, Manor, Tudor, Georgian, Hyde Park, Regency, and even a Shakespearean cottage. It's cleverly done, though. So there's an almost seamless blend of architecture that takes you from the streets of London back to the English cottage. The streets are cobblestone, there's a pub along the way, and the scent of fish and chips is heavy in the air. And it feels more or less like an authentic trip across the pond. So let's start with the grounds and gardens. As you walk into the pavilion, you're headed toward a town center, which is known as Britannia Square. And it's modeled after a real place, its namesake, Britannia Square, in Worcester, England. Like town squares around the world, this one represents the center of the community, a gathering spot of sorts. When you're standing in the central point in the square, you can go off in different directions, time periods, and really social classes. While there's usually a focal point in the squares, the Imagineers didn't want to create a fountain, which would have been fairly typical of a square, and the reason they didn't is because they didn't want to replicate what you see in the Germany pavilion. Instead, the designers considered a statue to be in the center. Several kings and queens throughout history were considered, as well as Lord Nelson, Lord Byron, Robert Burns, and William Shakespeare. But none of them really captured the Disney politically correct view of the world, so instead they went outside the box and decided to make a sundial as the center of the square. Yes, that brownstone pillar is a sundial. Take a closer look at it the next time you're there, and you can see the markings that indicate time, and as you study it and measure the shadows, check your watch to see how it measures up. Beyond the center square, the village represented in the pavilion comprises four main streets. First you have High Street, which is what many towns in the UK call the primary business street. You have Tudor Lane, which represents the House of Tudor, or the English royal lineage, that includes Henry VIII. And then you have Upper Regency and Lower Regency streets, which represent the Regency period in the UK from 1795 to 1837, in which included George III, George IV, and William IV, while the upper and lower refers to the class structures in the UK. These roads are based on an area of Chelsea in London. The main walkway that runs along the promenade is High Street, as you might expect. Let's take a walk along High Street, starting as you walk from Canada, walking toward the International Gateway. Off to your right is a little courtyard. This is a typical English Renaissance garden with a couple of planters and a fountain depicting a dolphin. There's also some subtle references to British history that, that may make Robert Langdon proud. He's the fictional symbologist that appears in Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, but I'm not going to try and decode them for you here. This area also contains two red phone booths of the traditional English style. Now the backstory on the phone booths is that in 1923, a competition was held to create a consistent and iconic standard design for phone booths. Three respected architects, along with designers from the Post Office and the Birmingham Civic Society, were invited to submit entries. The judges chose a design by Giles Gilbert Scott for what we now know as the red phone box. These are still in use today, nearly 100 years later, though cell phones have thinned their numbers quite a bit. There's also a postal box here, but I'll talk about that later when we reach the more residential area. Now as you're standing before... Now as you look beyond it, you're standing before a castle-looking building modeled after the Hampton Court Palace in London. 
This imposing brick structure features Tudor architecture, which was the final phase of medieval architecture. When visiting here, be sure to check out some of the windows. In the upper left-hand window are the crosses of St. Andrew, the patron saint of Scotland, St. George, the patron saint of England, and St. Patrick, the patron saint of Northern Ireland. If you overlay these three crosses, I hear that's how you create the Union Jack, the traditional British flag. And in case you were wondering, that is why it's called the United Kingdom. It's a conglomeration of all of the countries under British rule. England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. The coat of arms above the door as you look along the pathway there is one that was inspired by in the real Hampton Court Palace. While you're still standing outside, be sure and check out the chimneys. It would be difficult to find any more ornate in all of uh, Disney World. Also notice that the Imagineers tinted the tops with soot coloring to make it appear as if they're actually in use. Inside, it houses the Sportsman's Shop and the Historical Research Center, or HRC. By the way, the namesake Hampton Court Palace was home to King Henry VIII, and the architecture is Tudor in style. The shop inside is of the Elizabethan period, but toward the rear, the interior is modeled after a castle design of the Gothic Revival architecture. As you enter the building, take a moment to admire the model of a medieval banquet hall. It features royalty, nobles, musicians, jesters, and a host of service people enjoying a sumptuous feast. And if, when you're in there, be sure to take a look at the woodworking and ceiling in this store. There's also a massive fireplace, heavy wood furnishings, a vaulted ceilings, and a medieval weaponry to com that combine to create an imposing statement. Flags and all sorts of medieval armor and weapons adorn the walls, just as they would in a real castle. Look over the fireplace and you'll see the crest of the Kings of England. Back out on High Street, a little further up on your left is the Rose and Crown Pub. We'll talk about this location when we talk about drinking and dining. Across from the Rose and Crown, on the right, is Tudor Lane, which brings the idea of the Tudor-style house together thematically. The sundial is in the intersection. To your left is another traditional phone booth. And a little further up, beyond where we are standing, is the Yorkshire Fish and Chips shop on the left. And across the way on your right is a pathway back into the gardens, which we'll talk about in just a minute. One of the things you'll notice while standing here is that each structure represents a different era in British history, but the facades are so skillfully crafted that the transition from one to another is pretty seamless. As we look down Tudor Street on the right, the HRC building continues along, though the facade changes quite a bit. On the corner, it becomes a Scottish castle. This facade was modeled after Sir Walter Scott's Abbotsford Manor. The name Abbotsford comes from a spot on the River Tweed where Melrose and Abbey Abbots forded the stream each day. The castle design is Scots Baronial, which is part of the Gothic Revival style of architecture. Be sure and notice the decorative drainage spouts just below the roof line. On the left side of the street is a unique building called the Tea Caddy. This structure was inspired by the childhood home of Anne Hathaway, the wife of William Shakespeare. This style of architecture was common in the 1500s and features half-timbered walls and thatched roofs. But this being the 21st century and it being Florida and having fire regulations in place, the roofing material here is actually plastic rather than straw or rushes. This is similar to what you see in the Cheeky Room over in the Magic Kingdom. Larger homes of this era often had multiple fireplaces to help distribute the heat evenly. The largest of these hearths was used for cooking. They put several inside the tea caddy, so when you go in, take a look around for the different fireplaces. As you head down Tudor Lane, you'll notice the architecture and time period changes on both sides of the road. 
The tea shop is designed to resemble a typical 1600s building. The next features a sign that reads established 1702. And the last is built in as an 1800s neoclassical style. Further along on Tudor Lane, you'll see a stately home on your left. Within this structure is the Lords and Ladies Shop. Across the street on your right is the Crown and Crest Shop. Notice how the second story overhangs the first floor. In the 1600s, taxes were based on ground floor square footage. So, not unlike the story about the Germany Pavilion, people built larger upper floor homes to increase living space without increasing their tax base. But because these residences were over their businesses, there was a practical purpose too. This overhang allowed residents to throw wastewater from the upper floors onto the street without soiling their own windows and doors. Inside the Crown and Crest shop, you'll note several suits of armor as well as shields, swords, and a huge wrought iron chandelier. Back outside, next to the Crown and Crest, there's a large stone structure. But there's something most people miss here. There's a city gate in the alcove within the stone structure and between these two stores. During the Middle Ages, many cities were surrounded by a protective wall to keep invaders out and inhabitants safe. City gates were built into these walls to provide a controlled access to those wishing to enter or leave the city. In addition, the city gate became a hub of public information such as announcements, tax and toll schedules, and standards for local measures. One of the best preserved walls in England can be found in the town of York. The United Kingdom Pavilion's city gate is inspired by that one in York. If you stand back and look at the alleyway between the Crown and Crest and the toy shop, you'll notice the gate. There's also a clock on the wall above it. To the left of the gate, on the corner as you continue along on Tudor Road, there's the toy soldier shop. As you reach the end of the road, it turns slightly and loops around a courtyard. The area directly in front of you that goes off to the right is Lower Regency Street, while the road that goes off to the left is Upper Regency Street. As I talk about the buildings, you should note that the ones on Upper Regency Street are associated with more nobility, while the ones on Lower Regency are more common in nature. Back into the left is a location called the Queen's Table, which is housed within buildings representing the Elizabethan architecture that was named for Queen Elizabeth I, and is noted for having gable barge boards, diamond-shaped wooden moldings, trefoils, clovers, and chevrons. To add authenticity, the Imagineers designed the building on the left to lean ever so slightly. You should notice the crests that are in the leaded glass windows of the two-story structure. These are those of the major United Kingdom schools, Oxford, Cambridge, Eton, and Edinburgh. The building is made up of three rooms, the Queen Room, the Adams Room, and the Tudor Room. The building itself is a wonderful representation of Buckingham Palace with a four-column center. Along Lower Regency on the other side, facing the courtyard, are a series of homes that represent 1800s London. These are late Georgian row houses. These types of houses were inspired by the homes of Belgrave and Bedford Squares in London. Row houses originated in Great Britain in the late 17th century. The design is really simple, with identical or mirror image houses side by side with a shared wall between them. The first and last of these units were called the end terrace and were often larger than their neighbors on the inside. Again, there are realistic looking chimneys on top of all the buildings along both Regency Streets, and the brickwork on the buildings on both of the streets has been colored black to look as if there's soot on it. You have to really give it to the Imagineers for putting the attention to detail really into it. The row houses face out onto the courtyard, which is really an homage to London's Hyde Park. When there's no performances going on, the area is peaceful and there are benches to sit around and relax for a while. 
The park also includes a gazebo that's perfect for afternoon performances. Currently, a group called British Revolution performs mini rock concerts each day and into the evenings. Uh, they perform hits from British groups like Led Zeppelin, The Rolling Stones, Sting, The Who, and The Beatles. Check your Times guides for days and times that they're actually performing. The United Kingdom Pavilion here at Epcot is honored to celebrate the greatest music of all time. Keep your mince pies peeled, yell and scream as the greatest British songs of all time.
Surrounding the gazebo is a hedge maze fashioned after the Summer Layton Hall maze created in 1846. The bushes themselves are about two and a half feet tall, so you'll see children, and sometimes adults, making their way through this classic English maze. Behind the Victorian building and tucked in the behind the gazebo is an English cottage garden. Homeowners would work on small patches of their land and grow food items to help supplement their diet. A variety of fruits and vegetables were often planted. Herbs were also found in these gardens at times, but they were usually planted for medicinal purposes rather than for seasoning. As the country became more prosperous and fruits and vegetables were easy to obtain, flowers began to find their way into these plots. Today, cottage gardens overflow with greenery and color. Now, before we move on, there's also one other thing that I should call out to you, and that's the post box that's at the end of the street by the row houses. This is the second post box that's in the UK pavilion. The first British pillar boxes were erected on the island of Jersey, a British crown dependency off the coast of France in 1852. Now, these post boxes served a need. Because the Royal Mail packet boats serving the island had an irregular sailing time, and people needed a safe place to leave their letters and parcels for whenever the boat would arrive. The first pillar boxes were made of cast iron, octagonal in shape to make them distinctive, and about one and a half meters tall. These boxes spread across Great Britain and into some of the colonies that they controlled. And what you see here in the UK pavilion are two representations of those traditional post boxes. Turning back to the garden, there's a pathway within it that you should take a few minutes to stroll along. You can walk along a typical English garden path going back towards the town square. This pathway and the houses lining it were taken from the set of the movie Mary Poppins. Now as you exit the path, you'll go under a trellis and you're back onto High Street right in front of the Yorkshire Fish and Chip shop. Now let's go on and talk about shopping. Looking through the pavilion, there are several locations to do a little shopping. The toy soldier sells toys and memorabilia, usually associated with the UK, such as the Beatles, Paddington Bear, and the Rolling Stones. There are also traditional wooden toys as well as Disney merchandise. The Crown and Crest sells keep calm and carry on merchandise, including books, shirts, cups, and mugs. But you can also look up your last name via a computer and view your, your family's coat of arms. Historically, coats of arms were first used by the knights and feudal lords in the mid-12th century so that during battle, they would have a way to identify a friend from a foe. As time progressed, non-military personnel began to adopt their own coat of arms. Quite often, those closely associated with knights and lords borrowed their design and made it their own. Eventually, the clergy, common folk, towns, and cities were sporting their own heraldic insignia. In some areas, the acquisition of a coat of arms was regulated, but in most of Europe, they, the citizens were allowed to freely choose their own coat of arms. In addition to finding your coat of arms, a history of your last name is also available at the Crown and Crest. If you like what you see, there are several ways to take your birthright home with you. One of the most popular is to have your coat of arms and name history beautifully framed, and you can take it home as a souvenir. The sportsman shop sells football, i.e. professional soccer, not American football, team apparel from various teams, footballs, and books. The shop also sells Guinness merchandise, as well as Beatles memorabilia, t-shirts, and other sports articles. Inside the castle, which is the Crown and Crest shop, you'll also find pendants in addition to the handbags, football clothing, chess sets, and a whole lot more. There's some really unique items that you can find in there if you look around. The Tea Caddy Shop sells Twinings Tea, teacups, teapots, and British confectionery. The Tea Caddy is sponsored by Twinings. The purveyor of teas, coffees, and hot chocolates was founded in 1706 by Thomas Twining. It's generally accepted that Twinings was the first to blend Earl Grey tea. 
The firm's logo was created in 1787 and is one of the world's oldest in continuous use. Besides a large assortment of teas, the Tea Caddy also sells things to brew your tea and a collection of shortbreads, shortcakes, biscuits, and other munchies to complement your nice warm cup of tea. There's also a cart outside the pavilions that sells Walt Disney World trading pins, lanyards, Minnie and Mickey Mouse plush toys, shot glasses, and UK shirts. Lords and Ladies is a boutique that sells fine apparel and fragrances for men and women. Be sure to take a look at the ceiling in this shop. It's really interesting. In the shop, you can purchase Lulu Guinness ladies' purses, beautiful china, and other table accessories. You can also find fragrances for men and women and some clothing in this establishment. The Queen's Table sells heirloom brand Bone China Tea Service. In addition, Alice in Wonderland tea sets and other table accessories can be found in this shop. Now let's move on and talk about other areas in the pavilion. While there is no attraction per se at the United Kingdom, there is entertainment with a decidedly British flair. An acoustical group called Quick Step plays every Wednesday through Sunday. This four-person group plays a fiddle, flute, Highland bagpipes, an Irish frame drum, and more. The songs draw influences from Scotland, England, and Ireland, and their rich influences and cultural heritages.
Also, inside the pub, there's a rousing sing-along led by the piano player that's in there. As far as characters, Pooh and Tigger typically can be found in the Toy Soldier near the city gate. Mary Poppins and Alice in Wonderland can usually be found near the trellis in the garden I mentioned before. It's across from the uh, fish and chip shop. The Kidcot station is located inside the Toy Soldier. Now let's move to the one thing that everybody thinks about when they think about the UK Pavilion, and that's drinking around the world. Now some people enjoy sampling an adult beverage from the countries around the world. One of the places to grab a pint is at the UK Beer Cart where a variety of beers and ales are available. Get a drink and wander around the rest of the pavilion or take in some entertainment. If you can't decide, ask a cast member for a recommendation on which beer or ale they might, uh, they might suggest. But obviously the thing that most people come for, one of the more popular spaces inside World Showcase is the Rose and Crown Pub. The British have an interesting tradition of having gathering spots that serve libations and food. These places are called public houses or pubs. Like Germany, the British people have been brewing and drinking beer for many centuries. The inhabitants of the British Isles have been drinking ale since the Bronze Age, but it was with the arrival of the Roman Empire and its shores in the first century and the construction of the Roman road networks that this first inns called Tabernae, in which travelers could obtain refreshment began to appear. After the departure of the Roman authority in the fifth century and the fall of the Romano-British kingdoms, the Anglo-Saxons established alehouses that grew out of domestic dwellings. The Anglo-Saxon alewife could put up a green bush on a pole to let people know that her brew was ready to consume. These alehouses quickly evolved into meeting houses for folk to socially congregate, gossip, and arrange mutual help within their communities. Herein lies the origin of the modern public house. They rapidly spread across the kingdom, becoming so commonplace that in 965, King Edgar decreed that there should be no more than one alehouse per village. Pubs required a license from the local magistrate, which regulated gaming and drunkenness, undesirable conduct, and other directives. That's why you'll see a sign that says fully licensed on the Rose and Crown signage. Pubs often had frosted or distorted glass to shield customers from the street traffic outside. Pubs were often owned by breweries, making ale and beer a better value than wine and hard liquor. Many of these traits can still be seen at the Rose and Crown. They rep the Rose and Crown really represents a lot of these traditions that head over from Britain. The pub itself has two sections, the restaurant on the left and the pub itself as you walk through the doors. There's a sign on the Rose and Crown on the bottom that reads, Atium cum dignate, Latin for leisure with dignity. Look up at the roof of the Rose and Crown and crest. Notice the ornate terracotta faces of a man with a crown and a pipe coming out of his mouth. These are the drain spouts for the building. The Rose and Crown incorporates four different pub styles prevalent in the United Kingdom into one structure. The establishment's main entrance represents a street pub from the Victorian era of the 1890s. This architecture features brick and wood paneling. Country or provincial pubs of the 17th and 18th centuries feature slated roofs and plastered exterior walls with stone, stone coined corners. The Dickensian-style pub 
includes half-timbered walls, a flagstone terrace, and a slate roof. And finally, the waterfront, or river pump, is characterized by stone exterior walls and a clay roof and a decorative doorway. Outside in the river pub section is a recreation of a lock found on the Grand Union Canal. The Grand Union Canal stretches 137 miles from London to Birmingham, with branches that reach Leicester, Slough, Aylesbury, Wendover, and Northampton. Along its route are 166 locks. This canal was used for the transport of goods, primarily coal and building materials, between communities. You'll see a sign about the lock keeper being Thomas Dudley. Now, Dudley was born in Yardley Hastings, a village near Northampton, England. But his real claim to fame came later in the American colonies. It was here that he served several terms as governor of, Massachusetts, of the Massachusetts Bay Colony and was the chief founder of, of Newtown, which later became Cambridge, Massachusetts. In the early years of Epcot, the Rose and Crown Lock contained gates, but for some reason they were removed over the last decade or two. The pub itself can get crowded, so an auxiliary bar has been set up on the outside that dispenses a variety of brews. Nearby, a number of shaded tables offer a wonderful atmosphere to sit and unwind. Next up, restaurants. You can head to the Yorkshire County Fish Shop and enjoy your meal at a table overlooking the World Showcase Lagoon, or simply take it on the go. This is a specialty shop that really only has one item, fish and chips. It's a beer-battered piece of fish that's pretty authentic. Chips are what we Yanks refer to as thick-cut french fries. But this is so much better and so different than anything you can get at your neighborhood fast food place. And you really should try malt vinegar on your fish and chips. It's a wonderful flavor combination. It just really sings. It, it really is something special. Now, the uh, fish and chip shop does not sell ales or beer. So if you want a pint to go with that, you'll need to pass by the beverage stand outside the Rose and Crown. The two do go well together. So it's a good option if you're looking for a little pint to go with your fish and chips. One side note about this, and just kind of an amusing little thing, is that the word shire actually means county. So calling it Yorkshire County is kind of an in-joke. They're making a little uh, play on words there and just having a little fun with it. Traditional pub fare is found at the Rose and Crown Dining Room, which is part of the Rose and Crown Pub. Guests can feast on such specialties as cottage pie, fish and chips, bangers and mash, and you can finish off the meal with a delicious English trifle. A variety of beers and ales are offered in this charming little pub with wooden flooring and pressed tin ceilings. Entertainment focuses on music, and guests are encouraged to sing along and make song requests when the piano player is at the helm. The pub itself is located on the shores of the World Showcase Lagoon, so you get quite the view from there. In the early years, everyone entered through the front door of the brick structure, and this can be seen in older pictures and advertising for the establishment. But in more recent times, the entrance to the restaurant was moved to the side of the building, and guests now entered an eatery through a Dickensian-style facade. Inside the restaurant, you'll find three dining rooms, each with a decor to match its exterior. Although subtle, there are distinct differences. The first corresponds to the Victorian era, the second to the Dickensian style, and the third to the river or waterfront design. The Rosencrown restaurant also offers outside seating. Those tables that sit waterside offer outstanding views of the World Showcase Lagoon, and it's the perfect spot to enjoy a late night supper and watch illuminations. These tables can typically be requested, but they're never guaranteed. So if you get lucky, you'll be able to sit there and watch Illuminations and enjoy it. Now there is one other location from which you can get a little food, and that's the Tea Caddy. You can pick up a more traditional English breakfast of biscuits and enjoy those on the go. Now let's talk about what was in this pavilion. Now let's talk about what is and what was in this pavilion. Situated between Canada and the UK is a space for another pavilion. 
but it's used to house the World Showcase Pavilion. This area stretches behind the United Kingdom, pushing across the access roads. From October 1st, 1999 through January 1st, 2001, it was the Millennium Village, the focal point of Epcot's Millennium Celebration. The pavilion is essentially a long, big, inflatable tent. It was put up quickly and there's no reason that it can't come down quickly, except that it makes money for Disney in its current form, just like it is. Disney now promotes the 40,000 square foot function space as the world's largest indoor group facility located within a theme park. It's used for exhibitions, trade shows, receptions, banquets, conferences, and meetings of virtually any size and shape. The World Showcase Pavilion is out of place between the beautifully designed pavilions of World Showcase, but at least there's a gate along the promenade so you don't really notice it the way they kind of hide it out there. As long as they've closed the gate, it's kind of obscured from view. Now, the pianist inside the Rosen Crown used to do a show called The Hat Lady. The, the story goes that this eccentric American made the United Kingdom in hats her passion. Her collection of headwear was extensive and each had a tail. During her performance, she'd select a hat and then regale the audiences as to how it came into her possession and then sing an appropriate melody about it. She also knew a long list of the best-loved pub songs and encouraged the bar patrons to sing along. But she no longer talks about the hats and does the hat lady show. Instead, she's just the pianist inside the Rosen Crown and sings traditional pub songs. And of course, the World Showcase performers used to act along High Street, right in there in the alcove where the streets would spread out. But they've since been retired and you don't see the World Showcase performers out there anymore. Now, as I've mentioned before on this podcast, the Agent P World Showcase uh, thing is a ton of fun and it's very interactive and you get to go around and just kind of enjoy it and hang out and actually talk to cast members and they kind of engage you in some way. You can do different things. You walk up to them and you'll say things to them and they'll give you some responses or they'll give you the penny to put into the machine or the special coin that goes in or something. And it really does make it fun. It makes it pretty incredible when you, uh, when you play around with it. Well, that is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it and learning more about the World Showcase and the UK Pavilion in particular. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there... Please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. 